Hello and welcome to the Comic Book Page Podcast. My name is John Mayo. Okay, so we got some questions this time. We thought we'd split them out to this episode. Okay, I gotta ask on the DC side, just in terms of week-to-week basis. Five weeks, yeah. I had four the first week from DC, three the second, nothing the third, nothing the fifth, and like 12 on that fourth week. It's like that every time. I, I don't know what's going on with DC and their shipping. And part of me wonders, because... We get the stuff, and sometimes they'll send out two weeks' worth of stuff. Either it's getting there late, or they're just shipping it early and just to save on the shipping, you know, because they get the stuff really early and just be like, here's two weeks, hold on to a week. And then the shop, it's up to them if they want to do it or not. Well, I, I know Eric is, you know, when it comes in, they pull it, and the next box they ship to us, it's in there. Yeah. And that makes sense. And if you've got your distributor sending on a regular cadence, it comes every Tuesday or it comes every Wednesday or whatever then it should always be in the box every week. Yep, and it is definitely not always coming. So No. no. <laughs> when I'm getting nothing from DC one week and two or three weeks the next or something, it's getting me out of the habit of reading DC Comics every week. Yeah, because I was out on the Lazarus Planet stuff, I think I had two weeks in a row where I had no DC. And I don't know if that's two weeks that nothing went to Eric, or maybe I didn't get anything one week, and then previous week they just didn't send it on time. I don't know. Well, it's funny because if I look at it by cover price, that first week of four comics was just under $17. The second week of three comics was just under $12. Nothing for the third, nearly $60 for the fourth, and then nothing for the fifth. <laughs> 60 for the fourth. <laughs> That's funny. That's not good for the people going in to buy their comics. Blows their budget. The end of the month. I think there are some people that go every week to the comic store with X dollars, whether it's 10, 20, 100, whatever. They spend to that limit, and if something doesn't make the cut, I'm willing to bet odds are when they go back the next week, even if they're falling under that budget amount, I don't know that they're going to go back and pick up something from the previous week. I don't think they would. I I I wouldn't. Some people certainly will, but I don't think most people will. Now, I think I would get to that point where I'm like, if it wasn't good enough to buy it that week to make the cut, maybe I shouldn't get it at that point, you know, because there's something shiny and new at that week, you know? Yeah. Let's give this a shot. Well, and I think it also comes down to how is the store organized physically? A lot of stores have a new comics wall. Yep. You go there, you look at it, it either you get it or you don't, and you're not going to go look through the rest of the store. No, it's very true. I remember when I used to go to an LCS the last time, they would have new issues sitting out there, kind of laying out on display and they would always put like a little banner like over something new this week new this week new and i would just look at new this week because the mm-hmm. other stuff i'd seen it the last time when i was in there why why go and look at that stuff again so i think if i didn't pick it up on the new this week and i went back the next week i wouldn't even look at it i've been to some stores that have one rack that's here's what came out this week or one or two whatever a set spot all the new stuff is there and only the new stuff is there yep I've been to some that are like what you described, where it's just, here's all the racks, and they highlight the new stuff that week. I've been to one where they've got all the racks out there. Not only do they not highlight necessarily what's new that week, but they tend to be a bit more of a back issue store or whatever. So they'll have that spot on the 
the shelf for whatever title. It'll have the current issue, the, the previous one behind it, the previous one behind it, sometimes going 10 back if there's only a copy or two of each. Wow, that's crazy. Or, or kind of cool, but wow, you don't see that very often. No, no, it's a very unusual story in that regard. And it's cool when I'm looking for the last couple of issues of I'm getting on a title late or something like that. But it's a little, you know, annoying when it's like I, because they also organize their stuff by, for lack of any better term, I'm going to say genre, but it's not really, because there's some stuff it's like, oh, this is where the TV and movie stuff is. This is where the sci-fi stuff, this is where the, you know, whatever grouping made sense to them at the time. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, it's kind of funny, though, because I think I commented on the Slack channel. I was like, no DC this week. And at that point, it's become such a common occurrence. You're like, oh, I hadn't even recognized that. Yeah. Because yeah. it happens so often. And But it, it's kind of weird because Diamond, despite all the gutting and stuff that's happened there and people leaving them left and right publishers, they send a box every week. And Marvel or Penguin Random House seems to be able to get a box out every week. I don't know why Lunar can't. Well, Lunar is also operating a direct-to-customer business. That's true. They have to, instead of have just, you know, a couple hundred or a few thousand stores or whatever, they've got, I don't know how many actual boxes to ship out to, to end customers and such. That's true. I, and I remember that's why I left them a long time ago. <laughs> Eric's been good to me since then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Eric's been good to me. I mean, DCBS was, was good to me when I was there and stuff. It just got to the point where I knew Eric was starting up his mail order business and stuff, and my order would make a bigger difference there than it would at DCBS. And there were a couple of things, you know, where they had, I forget if it was when they were moving the first time, it was, I guess when they were moving the first time and there was a, a couple of week period where just all kinds of chaos was happening. Oh, yeah. And it was like a month later, they explained, well, it was because we moved and stuff. And I'm like, I'm a pretty good outlet for you to get the word out and stuff. Not the only one, certainly. But, you know, you could have told the podcasters and we'd have shared the word and maybe bought you a little understanding or whatever. But, you know, if if I'm not worth telling, you know, how does that make me feel? Exactly. Heck, even a mass email. So <laughs> everyone would have known. I remember there was just a outcries on Facebook groups. That I remember back in those days. <laughs> Where's my box? It's three weeks late. <laughs> Well, and that's the kind of thing, how and when you message makes a big difference. Yeah. If you had prepped the customer base for that, not a big deal. If you're doing it after the fact as a, well, it it happened and here's why and you should have known it or something. Because I stopped dealing with a a local comic shop here in town when they had stopped doing discounts. Yeah. And it wasn't that they'd stopped doing discounts, but they had decided apparently right after one week's Wednesday shipment or whatever – I go in Wednesday, picked up my stuff, no word. I go back like the next week, and it's as of the following week, the discount is gone. And the letter in my box was dated the previous Friday. So out of the, what, 12 days warning or whatever, five of the days or whatever had burned up just with the letter sitting in my, my pull box. Oh, yeah. Wow. And I'm like... That's frustrating. I buy a ton of comics here. I've got a the highest level discount the store had for a couple of reasons. I used to work there back in college and stuff, and very gracious of the store to, to provide it to me. They were not under any obligation for that. And I'm not saying they did any mistake getting rid of the discount, but to be facing a significant increase in my weekly spending, you know, no warning and, you know, whatnot, it, it, it didn't sit well with me. I can imagine. That would definitely ruffle my feathers. <laughs> 
And so th- that's how you became a DCBS customer originally. That is? <laughs> yeah. I, it, we, we, that was me. It was an economic thing. You, you get to a point where you just – it's tough to read a lot of comics and buy full freight. It really is just with the cost of things. Unless you're doing you know, some kind of like online service or you're doing a discounting, I, I would be reading probably half the comics I read now if I was paying 5 $4 an issue. If I was paying full cover price plus – some places, some states charge, you know, sales tax on top of that, you know, plus the bag and the board. Now, granted, that that doesn't add that much for a $5 comic or whatever, but certainly it all adds up, and that would really cut down how many comics I'm getting. Yeah. I'll never forget my last time when I when I got back into comics. This is just completely off the off topic, but I was shocked to go into a store, and I said, oh, I'll buy these, like, like let's say it was 10 comics, and they just throw them in a little plastic bag and hand them to me. I'm like, well, where's the bag and the board? Oh, you didn't tell us you wanted that. I'm like, oh, I, I'd always gone to stores where they actually just included it. <laughs> mm. I was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> now, most stores I'd gone to did not include it, but I think that may have been as much the time period as anything else. Yeah, I was spoiled. <laughs> well, it's been 20 years since I've gone to a comic shop on a weekly basis to physically pick up my books. Oh, yeah. Me, not that long, but it's been a while now. But I, I'll tell you what, Eric's done a good job for us, and he's pretty cool. He uh. He messages us and tries to give us a heads up when something's going on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there's going to be stuff out of his control, out of the distributor's control, out of the publisher's control. It's just communicate. Yeah. That's the biggest thing. Just tell us what the heck's going on. <laughs> yeah. First question from Dr. Mo. And this first one's actually a really great question. I fear I'm not going to have any good answers for it, but we'll try anyways. Share a DC Marvel indie book, one for each category, for the month of March that you recommend everyone pick up and the rationale. All right. <laughs> All right. You want to go first or you want me to go first? We'll start with DC. I'll start with DC. I'll let you go first. Okay. Mine is going to be a no-brainer because I went on and on about the book. I felt like Batman, Another Bad Day, Rachel Ghoul was a terrific read. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I didn't write down the writer, but I think it was Tom Taylor who wrote it. Tom Taylor's a fantastic writer. But it gives you so many things, like just comparing... If if you can pull yourself out of being triggered or or feeling victorious in any type of way by the way that he's speaking and look at the character for who he is and look at the story that's laid out logically and why Raish would act in such a way, it makes sense. And so essentially what you have is a story about a man who is a gray character, has his own moral rules. Then you have the Batman who, let's say he's the white knight and always good, do-gooder, justice the Superman of the story, even though we know Batman's not like that, but in this story he is. And they're both trying to almost sway the upbringing and the raising of Damien by their justifications for why they're doing what they do. So they're talking to him and telling him why I'm doing this. And I thought it was just fantastic. It's, it's great. Like I said, if you're easily offended, you may be upset with it. But I think if you read the story for what it is, fantastic. They don't get much better than this. It definitely sounds, if you're willing to kind of Go in with an open mind and try to understand Rish's viewpoint and whatnot. It definitely sounds like a good read. Yeah, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. It, it was really good. Cool. For me, narrowing it down to one's a little hard. So I've got three that I'm going to point out and try to explain the rationale for each. You cheater. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, hey, my podcast. <laughs> I have a hard time of what is the singular best or whatever. Yeah, it's different things, different people. Yeah. <laughs> the first one I'm going to suggest, Justice Society of America. I think it's some really good superhero type stuff. Jeff Johns is writing, and the art is by, I want to say Michael Janin? 
okay. yeah, terrific artist. So top-notch creative team. If you like the old Earth 2 characters, if you like heroes being heroes and a legacy aspect to the superhero stuff, there's just so much that Jeff Johns is doing right over in that title. And he clearly has a bigger game plan in mind that is going to, you know, be playing out both here and I presume weaving in like the Stargirl, Lost Children stuff, whatever. So I'm enjoying that. Second one, Batman Superman's World's Finest. Mark Wade, Dan Mora, again, great team. I think they play well with each other. Dan Mora's art style isn't exactly kind of standard superhero stuff, but he's got a, and I'm trying to think how to describe this. He did a great job over in Power Rangers. His style perfectly fits superheroes, yet it has a lighter, brighter kind of feel to it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you mean. It yearns a little of the spirit of old school comics while still having, you know, modern storytelling style and sensibility. Yeah, yeah, like nostalgic, but keeps it fresh. Yeah, yeah. And this title is telling stuff from years gone by with a modern take on it, and they're really being able to play with characters and ideas that DC has just not really touched on a lot. I mean, this is a fun metamorpho book along the lines of the character back from the 60s and such. Yet We've got the modern Batman, and it's not that this isn't the modern metamorpho, it's just the the tone, the style, the the vibe of the comics feels, I don't want to say Bronze Age, but it's got the best things of previous ages being told in the modern format, if you know what I mean. No, I know exactly what you mean. And it's working really well for me, and I'm looking forward to really both Jeff Johns and Mark Wade with what they're doing on those various titles and such, kind of expanding their sphere of influence over the rest of the DCU. Very cool. And then the last one I'm going to mention is Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries. Oh yeah, you've always loved that. Terrific done-in-one stories, nice Saturday morning feel to it, and they actually at times play more with DC continuity than a lot of DC titles do. Very cool. Nice. So the one this month was just a, a ton of fun. I think the one last month and the month before with Batwoman was even better. But this, again, all three of them I think are well worth checking out. Very cool. Nice. Okay, what do you got for Marvel? For Marvel. Okay, I filtered my stuff down to Marvel, and I was thinking about it because, you know, there's two things that I kind of marked near the top, or actually three, you know, it's like Wolverine, Punisher, Joe Fixit, those sorts of things. But for whatever reason, I was feeling kind of nostalgic. So really, if there's one book I would recommend people read, it would be Peter David's Joe Fixit. I feel like you don't have to have a lot of depth and of knowledge in the characters, in the continuity or anything like that. It's Peter David going back to either the, the late 80s or the early 90s. I think it was the late 80s when he did Joe Fix It and just throwing characters together, him and Peter, and just having a good time. It's him letting loose and saying, let, let, me, let me set up this thing and let's have fun. You know, you had Crusher Creel in here. Last time you had the Kingpin in there. So the Kingpin's still playing. Mm -hmm. So he's just taking all these characters and throwing them in, and it feels like just shaking the bottle and having fun. Another guy who's doing a, a similar thing, but I like Joe Fixit more, is it's kind of cool Avengers War Across Time just seeing Paul Levitz it, it, doing this old school, yeah. going back to like the Avengers from like the 1960s, and yet writing a fresh feel of the Avengers from the 1960s. But if I had to pick one of those two, it would be Joe Fixit. I think it's fun. You're going to be done in a five-issue series, so you're not even in for that much money. Although that Avengers War Across Time, Levitz is really nailing the feel of the 60s era Marvel yes. without feeling 
dated in the storytelling sensibilities. I agree. It's so amazing because I feel like it's the art and stuff. You feel like you're reading a 60s comic, mm-hmm. and yet it feels so modern <laughs> and so much better than a lot of what I'm where we get today. I'm just like, man, I could read Paul Levitt's writing the Avengers forever. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to when I get to his run of the Legion because he just did some brilliant stuff over there. Yeah, it's kind of cool because you know these guys like Stan Lee or or Paul Levitt's. I don't want to say they're typecast, but they work for a big corporation where they only get to deal with these characters, and they were fans of the other side. And yeah. you know, it's kind of cool to see Stan Lee go over. Now it's kind of cool to see Paul Levitt's going over here and playing with characters that he probably liked, but he couldn't ever do anything with them. And so you can just see like an old guy having a good time and going back to almost his childhood and writing something fun for us. Well, and I think part of why DC did so well under Paul Levitt's tenure, both as the publisher and also before and after when he was in various other positions of power in the corporate structure, he knows how to write comics. He understands comics. He's a fan of comics. Yeah. It wasn't just a job of I am moving X number of of widgets or something. There was a a passion about it, a seriousness about it, and I don't think Paul Levitz really gets the recognition he deserves either as a writer or as just a steward of the characters. No, I, I, I could see that because I never read much by him because I was never a DC guy. And reading this, I'm such a fan of his now. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, it makes me want to read more of his stuff on the DC side. And it, and it makes me hope that he writes more Marvel stuff. You know, it's just so much fun. He, he's a good writer. His storytelling style on this Avengers book is very different than what he used on the Legion book, but miniseries versus ongoing. Yeah, that's true. On the Legion stuff, he kind of did what he called the ABC storytelling style, where every issue had an A plot, a B plot, and a C plot. And one of them was always kind of starting up, one was always in the middle of it, and one was always kind of wrapping up. So something's always going on. <laughs> Multiple things are going on. Everything gives you a jumping on of something and a closure of something. And so, and it's always keeping you hooked to go to the next issue. Yes. It's it's overlaid, even if you're just kind of taking what would have been an ABC kind of beginning, middle, and end of a story and kind of shifting it over three issues and overtwining it with others. It's a lost art on today's writers. Totally lost art. Yeah. So my hat's off to the guy. He He's fantastic for... Haven't been there all those years. He, st- he still yeah, has it. Yeah. Ton of respect yeah. for him. Yeah. For me, my Marvel pick that I'd recommend this month would be Doctor Strange. Oh, yeah. And a good jumping on point with number one, and he's back alive. <laughs> There's references to the previous volume, but in a way that if you missed it, you kind of get the gist of it. And it resets the status quo. We get a couple of, of cameos here and there. Yet the main story kind of gets going and such. So terrific stuff. Jed McKay. Generally speaking, with the Mary Jane Black Cat story aside, always has payoff per issue. Very cool. So All right. Definitely recommend that. Nice. So that brings us up to our indie selection. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm kind of like sitting here. I'm like, which one do I pick? Which one do I pick? Because if I look at the things that I graded the best, it was Nemesis Reloaded number three, Ambassadors number one, and Forge number, or no, not Forge, Indigo Children number one. And out of those three, Two of them are written by Mark Millar, but I think I'm I'm going to do something different because I like the concept of the Department of Truth, and I'm going to go with Indigo Children, number one. Like I said, not normally Kurt Pyers fan, not that I'm I, someone I don't like, I just don't read much by him. The premise was fantastic. I feel like it has that mystery about it, and there's a bigger story to be told, 
and it left me feeling hungry for more for the next issue. Cool. So, and, and it came out of nowhere because I didn't expect it. I just remember seeing the little tag. If you're a fan of the Department of Truth, read this book. It's like a mashup of these two. I picked it up and it is totally that vibe. I want to see somebody do a solicit. If you're a fan of whatever the top selling title is these days, read this because I want your money. Yeah. And I'm like, here's my cash. <laughs> Take it. For me, again, not believing in the one size fits all. Yeah. I've got one pick if you just want just to read one thing and be done with it, and another if you want to kind of sink your teeth into something for a longer term. Okay. The read one thing and be done with it would be the Rocket Man, Rocket Girl one shot they just did over at Dynamite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Again, these characters are part of the Project Superpowers world, but you really don't need to know any of that. You just need to get the concept of they have jetpacks, they're superheroes, and that's, that's really all you need. So highly accessible fun story. I'm not going to say it's it's the highest art and literature and oh my god, it's it's incredibly deep and meaningful. It's not. It's it's a fun action romp for an issue. But it's so rare to get something where you can get in, have a good story and get out in a single issue and feel satisfied. Very cool. And then the one I would say, if you're looking for something that's more of a longer term thing as part of a big shared universe kind of a deal, I'm going to go with Star Trek Defiant. Oh, okay, cool. It's mixing characters from multiple branches of the franchise. I think it picked better characters than the Star Trek title. And if you're a Star Trek fan, you're going to know the characters, even if you haven't read the comics. And it gives enough of the story it's spilling out of from Star Trek to understand, okay, what is Worf and his crew going off and doing here? Very cool. By the way, my wife and I have been watching Star Trek Discovery on Paramount+. Plus, mm-hmm. And I, I, every time, I, I've said it like 10 times, and my wife's getting sick of me saying it. I'm like, it just looks so weird that the Discovery looks so advanced and the old Star Trek ship from the 1960s looks so archaic. <laughs> I think that was a very interesting decision they made from a production point of view. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. And what's interesting is if you look at the Enterprise over in Strange New Worlds, which is what will become Kirk's Enterprise, it has the look and feel of the ship, but it's it's newer, but it's not as high-tech holographic almost as the Discovery ship. Yeah. The Discovery looks so advanced, and then you see that old one come, and you're like, oh my gosh, it looks just so antiquated, and it's supposed to be so far in the future. <laughs> but Discovery was a science experiment ship. That's true. Yeah. So you with could the, chalk the, some of it up to that. Yeah, with those little, uh, I forget what they call them, the molecules from that little worm creature. My serial network. Yeah. yeah. See, I butchered it. <laughs> and if you look at the later seasons, there's a reason it's more high-tech. Ah, all right. Cool, cool. I'm not there yet. How far into the show are you? I think we're just getting to the end of season two. Okay, okay. So I, I, I think season three, they're jumping to the future. She's like, jump, or they're like, we need to get to the future to solve the problem that they're having. And so she was going through like a wormhole. The lady, she things happen. Okay, she was jumping through like a. I'm like, why is she flying like Superman through space? But okay, we'll do this. They <laughs> they shift up the status quo pretty much every season of that. And most seasons, they wind up with a new captain. All right. All right. Cool. So, Why do they keep changing the captain? What's up with that? I think that was something they just wanted to do to, to make the show feel different. Keep it fresh. Okay. All right. Cool. And there's aspects of the modern shows I'm really enjoying and other aspects where I wonder just how much do they really know and understand Star Trek? Yeah. It's just, I, it's so weird because I'm such a big fan of the Orville and having that lightheartedness. And then you watch Star Trek and it just feels so heavy and so dark. You're like, oh. Have you checked out Strange New Worlds? I have not. I have that on my list. It has a lightheartedness. Once you've finished season two of Discovery, 
because they've set up Pike and some of the others, check out season one of, of Strange New Worlds. Okay. I mean, and, and that's not to say it's bad. It just, it's such a different feel. You're just like, it feels so serious. You know, like it's almost too serious after watching uh, the other one, the Orville. <laughs> Strange New Worlds is more relaxed. It's not as comedic as Orville, but it's not uptight. Okay, cool. All right. I'm going to check it out for real. And it, it's got a, uh, to me, it's the most Star Trek of the shows we've had recently. Very cool. Okay, question number two from Dr. Mo, and I think this could be a very interesting discussion. <laughs> How do you feel about the Nightwing price increase to four ninety nine and the backup story? I feel horrible about it. Now, every time they have a backup story and then we get a price increase, it's like, I'm like, come on, man, don't make me pay for something I don't want to read. Oh. And, they, and, and the companies keep doing it. Not just DC's notorious for it, but Marvel does it sometimes, too. And it's just frustrating because I don't like it. I don't want to be charged a dollar for something that I don't want to read. That's not about the story that I purchased the book for. Quit doing this to me. And then the stories are usually no good. They don't go anywhere. And it's usually by a different creative team. And, and it's just like, I understand. But like, come on, man, this is not working for me. I mean, from a strictly philosophical point of view, I don't have any inherent hatred for the backup feature. I grew up on those, particularly on DC books. Yeah. But it was one thing when it was a 50 cent book and you got, you know, a full lead story and an eight page backup of you know, whatever happened to the Crimson Avenger or whomever. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Didn't know who the character was. And it was good art, good writing and done in one. Or sometimes it was, I'm reading The Flash and I get a backup feature of Firestorm that continues or something like that. Or the Earth 2 Huntress over on Wonder Woman. So it doesn't even necessarily have to be directly connected to the lead story if it's cool, if it's good. If it's something I'd be willing to pay for separately. Yeah, it, it just feels like the way it's being marketed now, I feel like I'm getting fleeced at times. I think it is that way now, but it's not like in the old days, a book went from, like most books were 60 cents and you're paying 75 to get one with a backup feature. I mean, these days, most books are three ninety nine unless they inflict the backup feature and tack on an extra dollar. And those backup features are short, serialized, and by the time it gets to the conclusion of what would have been a single issue, two or three months have elapsed, and I've forgotten where the thing started. Yep. It's not being written well, and in this particular case, I might like it more if the backup was better, or if it was written by Tom Taylor, or we had art by Bruno Redondo, or if they had just used this to do a slow setup for the Titan series. Yeah, that's what I think they should have done. Let's take this back, set up the Titans, okay, cool, get some excitement about it. And Tom Taylor's going to be writing it, so lo and behold, he should be writing the backup story about the Titans. But instead, you just get something completely different. You're like, the only time I feel like the backup story has worked for me personally was when I read the Penguin backup story when he died. Yeah, that one was good. And that one was really good. It was better than the main story. And I was like, wow, at least I got this little gem back here. But those are so few and far between. And most of the time, you're just getting something where, oh, that wasn't good. Oh, that wasn't good. And you don't get enough of a little story. They want to spread it out over six issues to eight pages. Now it's even harder, remember, because you're getting less and less and less of a story. You're getting issues spread out over six months. Well, and let's take this backup feature that is starring Nightwing and guest starring Superman Jr. Yeah. Both characters are written by Tom Taylor. The backup feature is not. Yep. Why? why? <laughs> That's exactly right. why. Why? He's writing the... Why, why is he not writing this? Makes no sense. Maybe he's too busy because he's got Dark Knights of Steel and other stuff going on, but why do we need Nightwing to be more expensive, 
And not only do we have the backup feature, but we've got the Titans invading the lead feature, so it feels like we're getting less Nightwing. It's just frustrating. And I'm usually not a fan, and I'm not a fan of this one. I'm just like, I feel like the prices are going to go higher eventually to the point where there's just going to be nobody reading these things. <laughs> I felt that way for a while, yet people still buy them, myself included. <laughs> people keep buying them, yeah. But I'm like, it's just frustrating. Like, just charge me four ninety nine and give me more of just a big story of Tom Taylor writing Nightwing. Don't give me a backup anything. The, the problem is they can they can't do that because they can't get all the art done and stuff like that. Yeah, so yeah, that's I think true. expanding the page count and raising the price is a non-starter. So they have to do the backup. Well, they don't have to. Suppose they kept Nightwing at three ninety nine, how it had been. Could they have taken this backup feature and maybe kicked it over to the Adventures of John Kent book or whatever, or maybe not do it at all, or could they do an actual anthology book where it's this and some other backup or two as one three ninety nine comic or something? Maybe. I'm, I know there's people who would buy it, and then I feel like it's not I, – I, I don't feel like I'm being taken advantage of at that point. Me as the consumer of Nightwing who just wants Nightwing. Yeah. I think charging me an extra dollar for something I didn't ask for, not cool. And it's one of the things that's souring me on other books like Wonder Woman and stuff like that. I mean. The backup in Wonder Woman this month with Mary Marvel was the first I've actually read and halfway liked or whatever, versus all of the Young Diana stuff where they were essentially serializing the the Young Adults book they were doing. Yeah. I'll never forget when I was getting Wonder Woman. I'm not reading Wonder Woman right now. Getting that and getting that story in the back that was just the worst art I've ever seen. I didn't want to read it. It was like some kind of butchered kid's book. And I was like... It wasn't bad art, but it was so geared to a younger audience. Yeah, it was like, I'm like, why am I reading this uh, children's book? <laughs> yeah. What is this? It made me angry at that point. <laughs> I, I did. I felt like like enraged a little bit. I say that jokingly. I'm, I, wasn't, I wasn't ripping up the comic or anything. I was just like, why am I? I don't want this. This isn't for me. You were getting charged an extra buck for it. Yeah. So it's not like it was a no harm, no foul. If if they were tossing in these backups, like this Nightwing had a backup and it was still three ninety nine, I'd yeah. be a lot more charitable towards it. Exactly. And that was the perfect example of it didn't have anything to do with it. It's a different creative team. It didn't even have the same feel that you're giving me a children's book. And obviously, I'm not a children's reader. So wrong audience, dude. (laughs) Well, and again, almost all of the DC books we've talked about since they've done the backups in the last few years, there are maybe a handful where we thought, yeah, this was good. The Penguin backup story with Catwoman and stuff, that one was good. The, the Mary Marvel one wasn't bad. Beyond that, that? That's all I can remember. Yeah. And they've done a lot of them. Yeah. The, the Penguin was like the gem of the bunch. Well, and it was also done by the same writer as the lead story, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Lo and behold, that works. Hmm, who would have thought? And gosh, it sprung out a Penguin series. Go figure. Who would have thunk? <laughs> yeah. Ah. <laughs> uh. So I guess the short answer is, yeah, I don't think we're happy about it. Either the price increase or the backup story and the two in combination, uh, yeah, not working for me. Me neither. (laughs) Okay, third question. You're in the home stretch of Jason Aaron's Avengers run. One (laughs) issue to go, despite what you told me last month, James. (laughs) We still have one more, and that was after the ones this month. I was baiting you, trying to trigger you. (laughs) Lying, I think, is the term, but I'm just saying. Just a regular old Loki over there. Yeah. (laughs) So we've got Avengers Assemble Omega in April. So the one last thing and we're done. How do we feel about the March issues? Any improvements? I'll let you speak to that, John. 
Well, I think just being that much closer to the end of the era, I, I mean, era <laughs> of the Avengers, that, that's something of an improvement. You spoke truthfully at the, the end of the era. This was a complete era, this entire exercise. <laughs> yeah. It just hasn't been good. No, nothing was good. I remember one thing that was good. I remember I thought it was really cool when we saw the Squadron Supreme and we saw the Russian characters. I can't remember their names. And I thought we were going to have a face off of the Americans and the Russians and reignite the Cold War, which lo and behold is coming to life as we see this happening now. And it went nowhere. We never saw it again. It just disappeared. And why did it? He just came up, oh, here's vampires. Never see it again. Never. All right, cool. It was too much of, hey, here's quote-unquote, cool ideas, not all of which I thought were actually cool. And too much of it was in a supernatural bent in the whole celestial, you know, headquarters stuff. There were a lot of it that didn't work for me. I really should have dropped the book much, much earlier on, like in the first arc. Me too. And then just looking at the two issues this month with Avengers 66, it was an okay issue, but they've got a like a two-page spread there at the end with the, the Avengers Assemble rally cry. And I'm like, you know, this would have been way more impactful, at least for me, if the text of Avengers Assemble had been, I don't know, maybe placed above the characters in like a, a joint, you know, shouting balloon or whatever, instead of translucent red in front of and obscuring them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I'm like, you took a moment and you just you stole your own thunder kind of a thing. Just, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And then the Avengers Forever 15, a lot of action. There might even have been some plot in there, too. But it's just, it's too big of a swan song for an era that just hasn't really worked for me, that as for the actual content of the issues, I continue to be underwhelmed. It's not the Avengers I want and not the Avengers I love. No, that's where I am. I mean, it was a lot of buildup, I feel like, for this whole Avengers 10,000 BC or whatever it was. And I felt like it, it, it landed on its face for me. I got so disengaged from the book that it, like midway through it, like let's say in the 20s or something, or 30s, I just kind of checked out. I went through the motion of reading it, but I it was in one ear, out the other. You know, I, I, I didn't retain it because I was so underwhelmed and just didn't enjoy it. So Jason Aaron, I feel like, needs to stick to his dark and grittier things, his dark and gritty tales, and that's where his passion is, and you can see it come through. Because when he's writing superheroes, it's not always working. So what are your expectations of Jed McKay's new Avengers run? I have my fingers crossed that is will be well, I, I think he'll do a better job than Jason Aaron did, but I think I'm I have my fingers crossed that it'll do well because he specialized in doing those little short stories, you know, with like he was doing the black cat, he right? He was doing black cat and did a really good job of done in one stories that built to a bigger hole. Yeah, and so I think he'll do well. I don't know how that will translate because I don't think he's done a team. He did that and he did Moon Knight that I can think of right now. So I'm I'm hopeful that he can do a team. I just haven't seen him write a, a cast of characters. That's a great point. I'm trying to think if I have seen him do a, a team book. So I'm I'm kind of like hopeful for it, but I, I'm a little bit, you know, some trepidation because I haven't seen him write that many characters and I don't know how it'll be. Yeah, I don't know how it's going to be either. I'm not crazy about the lineup. I don't object to it, but it's not ones I would have picked. Yeah, it's not the all-star cast that you'd want. <laughs> I'm okay with a not all-star cast. I love some of the stuff in the 90s. Yeah, and they had some weird cast. <laughs> Black Knight I thought was great. I loved the Monica Rambeau Captain Marvel when she was leading the team. Yeah. Wasp is always a lot of fun. There are some other lesser-known Avengers that can be a lot of fun to read. So it doesn't have to be Thor, Cap, Iron Man, and some other heavy hitters. But I'm hoping... 
Jed McKay gives it a serious yet lighthearted fun feel to it, that we get some good interpersonal dynamics without needless angst or whatever, and that it's feeling more like classic Avengers than I feel the Jason Aaron run has been. Ah, okay. All right. So we'll we'll see. I, I have a feeling that'll be a good book to talk about next month. Yeah, me too. Okay, we've got some questions from Super Flash Adam 1980. <laughs> Michael here, and he'll keep reminding us he's Michael until we remember that. And uh, I'll just say up front, Michael, I'm sorry, but my memory isn't what it used to be, or I don't know, I've forgotten. So you may need to keep reminding me, and I apologize for that. So thank you for your patience on that. I really appreciate him reminding us because I forget we have too many people and names like on the Slack and all. I, I mix them up all the time. <laughs> oh, I got, got life going on. Plus, you know, way too many fictional stories bouncing through my head with characters to distract me. So, yeah, I, I'm bad with names. I apologize. Yeah. But I appreciate the questions. First one, Avataro Sentai Don Brothers is done, John. I think it was pretty good. It was definitely different than any of the previous Super Sentai I've watched. Still, it was enjoyable. What did you think? This is a question for you, because I don't even know what that means. <laughs> yes. Avataro Sentai Don Brothers was season 46 of the Super Sentai stuff. It was coming after a really fun anniversary season. And what was unusual about the anniversary season was they did mecha types as the other rangers. Oh, okay, cool. So human red ranger. What's different about this season of Don Brothers is they have three human rangers... Actually, technically, all well, all five of them are humanoid, but two of them turn into CG rangers. So one of them turns into like a dog-type ranger about the size of, say, a Rocket Raccoon. Cool. And another one turns into almost like an oversized ostrich-type really skinny pink ranger, and that's the guy ranger. Awesome. So they're definitely going in some different directions with Don Brothers. It's sort of a sequel to the previous season. One or two characters kind of carried over, maybe sort of. I'm only about a quarter of the way into the series. I got kind of busy. I got up to about episode 14, and then I just, I've let episodes kind of stockpile. Okay. But half hour show every week. So it's, it's, it doesn't total up to an insurmountable amount. It's on my list to watch. I just need like a free weekend to just plow through it or just need to start chipping away at it. Definitely it's different than past Sentai shows. In some ways good, in some ways not. I think for me, the Achilles heel is typically in the first episode or two of a, a Sentai show, or the first few of a, a Power Rangers show, you get a very clear sense of these are the Rangers, these are the bad guys. The bad guy's shtick is uh, they're polluting the environment, or they're feeding on negative emotions, or whatever it is. I never really felt out of the first 14 episodes that I got that for Don Brothers. So I'm like, what's the basic premise of the season? Interesting. And not only did I not understand the bad guys, they've got this other group of three characters that first looked like they were the big bads, but maybe aren't. So we've got a third thing, a third faction that's fighting both the bad guys and the good guys. And I'm like, you never really explained this to me. Now maybe it gets better. Maybe I should start back from the beginning. I don't know. It's not bad. It's enjoyable. It's a bit more CG than some past seasons. That's not bad. It's just different. And they've already aired, I think, six of the show after it. But I, it, and this happens to me periodically with the Super Sentai stuff. It's coming out, you know, week in, week out without, uh, you know, any breaks or whatever, typically, or a break one week, you know, period that, you know, if I get busy in life, it just piles up and I just need to kind of plow through it. And that's where I'm at on that one. Very cool. Interesting. Yeah. So 
Second question, also for me, is I've said I've watched Ultraman and Kamen Rider before. Didn't enjoy them. Do I remember the names of the series I tried? And the short answer is this was around, I don't know, 15 or so years ago. So, no, I don't. Oh, interesting. I'll tell you the Ultraman I watched. Okay. I grew up on Ultraman, and I loved – it was the original 60s series because they had it in syndication, so it would come on TV because mm-hmm. I, wasn't, I wasn't alive in the 60s. But, I mean, it, it was horrible, you know, like guys and monsters dressed up in full body suits, kind of rubber, and doing his hands like a T, shooting the laser beams. But I used to love that when I was a kid. That, that's, where I, that's why I like Ultraman, because I watched Ultraman when I was a kid. I watched some of that era of stuff as a kid, too, and they've got the little – you know, silver thing, they kind of, the guy holds it, shouts, and turns into to Ultraman. Yeah, I used to love that show. And the whole, they put up the little cities, you know, they build the little cities for him to fight in. It was awesome. When I was trying to get back into it, it was a revival of, of the Ultraman stuff. Okay. And there was a team of five or six special police or army, you know, military types that were there to, to kind of fight the big alien monsters or whatever. And then, oh, Ultraman's around, so they're backing him up or whatever. And it's as much about them as, as Ultraman. And it's a very different dynamic, personality-wise, team-wise, than I tend to get with the Super Sentai. And I've also found with the Kamen Rider stuff, it tends to be a lot of one or two Kamen Rider characters that are antisocial, a bit more aloof. They're not a team of common writers, even though they eventually all kind of, as the late seasons go on, they wind up with more per season or whatnot. Okay. And it's a different, it's a different vibe. It's like, I don't want to say that it's aimed toward older audience than Sentai, because it's, it's not by that much, but it's got a very different feel to it. And it's not bad. I've just never really gotten into it. Okay. And they go through power-ups and gizmos and, and collectible-type gadgets, you know, whatever, uh, a lot more than I think some of the Sentai stuff. All right, cool. So it's fun stuff. If I can ever remember which seasons it was, I'll I'll mention that. I know I did a little bit of whichever season of Common Rider, it might have been Decade, that was kind of the precursor to the Sentai using the same gist of this Common Rider's powers was that of past Common Riders. Yeah, common Rider, I know nothing about, but yeah. interesting. And I just don't like the bug motif on so many of their characters. Yeah, I was looking them up on Google. They're very very weird looking. Yeah, like insects. Yeah, a lot of them look like insects. It's The design aesthetic doesn't work for me as much either on... Because, man, you put half a dozen Ultramen in front of me, I can tell they're Ultramen. I could not tell them apart. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas the team basis of the Super Sentai stuff, it just works better for me for some reason. That makes sense. All right. Third question, again, for me. He does have one for you. Don't worry. <laughs> How excited am I to watch The Mighty Morphin Power Ranger once and always on Netflix? I am certainly interested. I am happy they got a lot of original series actors, or originally team actors for the show. I don't know when I'm going to get around to watching it. Again, I've been kind of busy lately. And there's one or two things that I... I'm not excited about, but that's that's got nothing to do with the show. It's just baggage I've got. But I appreciate that they're doing an in-universe thing for the death of the Yellow Ranger, because the actress passed away ages ago, and that's highly unfortunate. I don't know that they're going to do anything about Jason David Frank's passing, because I think that happened after they filmed all the stuff. And I think the Green Ranger is at least in the story somehow. I don't know the specifics or whatnot. Again, haven't seen it. I think doing a 30th anniversary special for the original group, a lot of fun. 
the fact that they got Walter Jones, the original actor for the original Black Ranger. They got, oh shoot, I'm blanking on the name of, of the Blue Ranger. Yost. I forget his name. Anyways, I apologize. They got those two guys. They seem to be kind of the anchor of the stuff. And then they got the second Red Ranger and Pink Ranger to be in there. Plus, they got the actor who was the second Black Ranger and the actress who was the second or maybe third Yellow Ranger in other... As those characters, but not as those Rangers. Because, again, at that point, different people became Rangers. You were right. It's David Yost. David Yost. Yeah. Sorry, I figured... No, I appreciate help you, with, help you with the Google search. <laughs> I appreciate that. I am not good with names, as I mentioned. And I think getting those original guys back, a lot of fun. I hope it's good. And I hope it's respectful to the original material and what's gone before it. I expect it will be. But yeah, I'm not sure when I'm actually going to find the time to sit down and watch it. Some of that may depend if I can talk my sister into watching it, if she's interested or not, and if we have time for that. Cool. Well, that was my question. I kind of jumped ahead because he was asking if I, I said I watched Ultraman, which I did when I was a kid. And he was, he, Michael was asking me, what did I enjoy about it back then? And have you ever watched Power Rangers? If so, what about it did you, didn't like? Oh my gosh, I can't talk tonight. Okay. We've been recording for a while. We don't know this, but we have been. Okay. Actually, I'll, I'll tell you what. I used to love Godzilla and Ultraman. And they actually had Ultraman fight Godzilla back in the day. I remember that. Did they? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they did. It would make sense. I think they're both from Toho. Yeah, Tokyo and there's like, they're Japanese creations and they are both around the 60s because you- Well, I think they're from the same company. Oh, okay. Yeah. And they used to have like the little fake tanks drive into the city. And that's what I used to love. You'd have the whole city set up and you have all the tanks come in and they'd be shooting the tanks at- Godzilla, I used to love that with the guy with the big, you know, rubber suit on. I just never got into Godzilla either. Oh, oh my gosh. Godzilla, I used to love. He fought Mothra and he'd fight all the monsters and then he'd destroy the city, run around and kicking the little city. It was just, it was great. I mean, I don't know why, but I used to just love that stuff. It was just so fun for me. And even, you know, all those 60 shows, even Star Trek, the original Star Trek, I used to watch it on syndication. Mm -hmm. So I watched more Ultraman, Godzilla, the Love Boat, Gilligan's Islands, that than I did cartoons growing up. So you know, I, I probably watch more I Dream of Genie than cartoons growing up. Oh, I watched a bunch of that other stuff, but I loved the Saturday morning cartoons too. So oh yeah, me me too. I got a limited amount until my dad woke up. Then it was changed. <laughs> the TV changed to whatever they wanted to watch. But I mean, it it was but it was a sweet spot for me. Now on the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, I've never watched it. John and I reviewed a comic way back mm-hmm. in the day. Where uh, it was the one Kyle Parrott, he was, he was doing uh, the Shattered Grid that, that arc, I think. Yeah, and I was so lost. They were talking about Zords. I'm like, what is a Zord? <laughs> what is this? Yeah, there's certain parts of the the vernacular. Either you know it or you don't. Yeah, and you told me I can watch most of this stuff on Netflix, but I'm a married man, and we watch TV together. <laughs> I don't typically watch things on my own. If I watched on my own, I probably would queue it up. But I don't know if my wife would be into watching Power Rangers. So I I think that would be a no-go with her, but I'll I'll run it past her again. But I literally have not watched Power Rangers. I think if I did watch it, should I go back to the beginning? I don't know. No. Okay, where should I start? Part of it with the original is there was a lot more of the comedy asides and almost, I will say, Benny Hill kind of routines with Bulk and Skull. Man, that's a tough call. It depends what kind of show you want to watch. Yeah, is there like a good jumping on point? That's what what I don't even know. What is the movie a good jumping on point? If I watch the movie, no. Okay, so no. no. It's for fans. The the recent movie, you mean? 
That because that was a reimagining. Oh, okay, okay. I didn't watch that either. I think the original movie and certainly the Turbo movie uh, are fun. Turbo was in continuity of the show. If you uh, really for you, I would almost say Power Rangers RPM. RPM. Okay. And the way to prep your wife for it: watch Pacific Rim. Okay, we love Pacific Rim. That gets the whole people in in big robots kind of set up. Okay. And Power Rangers RPM had almost kind of sort of a little bit of a Mad Max vibe to it. Oh, I love Mad Max. It's a I mean there's not the cars running around like that although it is a okay. car-based season. It's uh, a post-apocalyptic world and these rangers are kind of fighting to save the planet. Oh, that sounds right up my alley. And it's got a bit more attitude and uh, humor than some of the others. It had some some good acting. All right. And it didn't have as much of the zany, wacky, let's have two people just do the slapstick comedy type stuff. Okay, Power Rangers RPM. Yeah. I'm going to try that. And if I like that, then I go into a dark rabbit hole where I'm watching Power Rangers for the next two years. <laughs> <laughs> it could happen because we ended up watching a Turkish drama for 300 of the 500 episodes, I think, until they took it off Netflix and we were so frustrated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think they're going to take Power Rangers off. It's, it's the new home. Yeah, okay, good, good. So, I, no, I'll give it a try. I, I can't promise when, but I've never watched it, Michael, so I can't judge it. I just was completely confused when I read that book because I didn't know anything. Well, but and the, again, that was the Crisis on Infinite Earths for Power Rangers. Yeah, like throwing someone who knew nothing about comics into Crisis on Infinite Earths, they're going to be like, what? What is this? What's going on? Yeah, we threw you in the deep end. I appreciated you being willing to go along for the ride. Hey, no problem. I, I had fun doing it. Yeah. I like, I like hanging out with you and talking. Oh, good. <laughs> appreciate that. But I definitely think that Kamen Rider, Ultraman, and Power Rangers all have very different vibes to them. I mean, it's just like how the X-Men is different than the Avengers, and you're not going to confuse, say, you know, the Justice League and the Authority or something. Okay, that makes sense. You know, they're all the same. They're superheroes. They fight, you know, bad guys or whatever. But they're different. They're very different tonally, and what baggage they bring in, what kind of part of the genre they're fitting in, stuff like that. All right, cool. That sounds fun. So, and if you have suggestions on maybe a good place for me to get started with maybe the Godzilla stuff, I may may try to find the time for that. You know what? I'll try and find out a place for you to get started because I, I love Godzilla when I was a kid. I thought it was fantastic. And then when you see the characters from back then in the 60s, they had the big Mothra, mm-hmm. and then they had them again in the movies. I remembered it. It triggered something deep in that brain somewhere when I was a little kid watching that on TV. And I was like, wow! <laughs> it was just fantastic. Well, and again, if people have suggestions on maybe what I should be trying for Ultraman and Common Rider to see if I like, you know, if I had the right starting point, if I could get into it a little better. Yeah, and my, my only thing for Ultraman is I only watch the 60s shows. So I used to love those, but, you know, watching it from a kid today, I don't know how well it translates. Mm-hmm. But, but I did love that. Cool. And then the last question. And this is one that was kind of prompted by Eric. Oh, yeah, Eric. Is there any interest in more kind of Q&A episodes like this, but with some of the other co-hosts, like Eric and or Sam? I don't know if I could get my sister on for one of these or not, but, you know. Yes, I think it would be fantastic, because I have questions for Eric, and I have questions for Sam, and I know other people do. I think it would be a fantastic idea. Like, sometimes, like, I mean, if you want to have us all on there, that's cool. If you want to do one with just Eric or just Sam... I would have questions for you guys. I think it'd be awesome. It might be scheduling-wise a lot easier to do just kind of one-on-one type stuff. 
Yeah, I think that'd be cool because like I have tons of questions for Eric on how the distributors were working, the market. You guys can talk about all kinds of stuff like that. And then with Sam, it'd probably be more like TV questions and what's getting canceled, you know? Mm, yeah. How does streaming affect things long term? You know, stuff like that. Well, and what does he see as the future of both the MCU and the DC superhero stuff in movie and TV? Yeah. Is there a real burnout? And what does he see? Who knows? Well, I was reading some articles implying that the MCU may not get as many TV shows and such because they, they should focus on more what they're doing than just kind of greenlighting everything, it felt like. And maybe well, let's get more properties out there so we don't have so many, either more or less, I forget what it was, because they realize we put something out there and it's five years later before we do a sequel. Is is that really serving it well? Is that a good idea? Maybe it is, whatever. But then the other thing I'm curious about that Sam might have some insight on is I was reading an article about the rebranding of HBO Max. Oh, just as Max, yeah. Well, it's kind of funny because it was also what kind of took over the television movie side of what had been the original DC online service. Yeah. It's so weird because those groupings of people, people who watch Discovery and people who watch HBO, there is no overlap and they're different groups of people. Yeah. People watching food TV and people watching whatever that one is about the girl on drugs. I can't remember. Euphoria. <laughs> Euphoria. Like, there's no overlap. It's so bizarre. I, I watch Gold Rush. I love that on Discovery, you know, and that's not the same people who are watching things on HBO. It's just very weird. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're definitely at an inflection point on the streaming stuff. And I think the kind of golden age of streaming where everything was getting greenlit or whatever is kind of over. Yeah. And I don't know how that plays out, you know, in terms of more MCU, more or less DC stuff or how that goes. Yeah. And it feels like the streaming services are starting to combine and merge stuff to the point where, hey, we're, we're recreating this thing called cable. <laughs> you pay one pr a higher price and you get all the stuff you don't want. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. Yeah. It's hilarious. But yeah, if we get questions and stuff and I think maybe starting forum threads for, you know, questions for each of the co-hosts, when I get enough, I'll try to schedule some time with that co-host and uh, go through them. Very cool. I don't know what the cadence on that's going to be. Some of that comes in with how quickly the questions come in, how many we get, how good they are, and just scheduling on my side and everybody else's side, too. Yeah. Hey, see when those guys are ready, and I'll start hitting up people on the Slack for questions for Eric or for Sam, whoever's going first. Or your sister. Eric is certainly, I think, willing to do it. I would need to talk to my sister. I'd need to talk to Sam and just kind of figure out what's going on with that, if they're interested or not. I'm not committing them to anything without having asked, is all I'm saying. I have a feeling Sam would be willing. I don't know that for sure. My sister, uh, I don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> we shall see. If there are good questions could definitely, you know, make it an easier sell. All right, cool. Anything else? No, that does it for me. Cool. The show notes and form for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.